Hello and welcome to another Conversation in Anthropology at Deakin, a podcast where we talk about life, the universe and anthropology. Uh, Each episode, a few of us from Deakin sit down with a visiting fellow anthropologist to talk about their work, about the state of the discipline and what anthropology has to tell us in the 21st century. I'm David Giles. I'm a lecturer in anthropology here at Deakin, and I'm here with my co-host, Timothy Neal, who's a research fellow at the Alfred Deakin Institute for Citizenship and Globalisation. And as usual, we're also joined by another guest host from Deakin, uh, this time Dr. Lara Fullenvedu, also a postdoctoral researcher at the Alfred Deakin Institute. Today, we're speaking with Dr. Cameo Daly, a MacArthur postdoctoral fellow in anthropology at the University of Melbourne. Cameo's doctoral research was based in the remote Aboriginal community of Mornington Island in the Gulf of Carpentaria. And then from 2012 to 2015, she ran the Centre for Native Title at the Australian National University with Professor Nicholas Peterson. She has written about race, identity, indigeneity and intercultural relations. Her current research project is based in Western Australia in the remote eastern Kimberley region, examining local race relations and the multiple realms in which Gaudiya and Naranyan Aboriginal belonging are manifested, uh, particularly in light of the proposed closure of Aboriginal communities. Uh, so, Cameo, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Uh, we always start off with a great big sort of icebreaker, which is how did you become interested in anthropology? We ask everybody that question. So uh, I'm from a family who uh, everyone else in my family is involved in agriculture in one way or another. Um, and being the youngest of uh, my siblings, uh, I was desperate to do something quite different to what everyone else was doing. I guess um, as a child, I'd kind of always I developed an interest in in, in artifacts. Um, uh, my maternal grandmother used to collect antiques, and she often, in her house, there was full of Aboriginal artifacts that she'd collected in Western Queensland when she lived on a large pastoral property. So initially, I actually had all intentions of being an archaeologist. Um, And the first opportunity I had, I went on an excavation in Cape York and uh, I found that rather than spending time behind the trowel, I was actually much more interested in talking to Aboriginal people who were uh, involved on on the excavation. And that kind of really hinted to me that I was probably better talking to people than being at the bottom of an excavation pit. So how did you get from there to uh, to here? From the pit to the, <laughs> to the postdoc. <laughs> uh, I mean, in the end, it was those early connections which actually um, turned out to to kind of help me along in my career. Mm. I um, I did a Bachelor of Arts and Honours at the University of Queensland, and my honours supervisor was part of a large Australian Research Council project uh, and a multidisciplinary project Mm. working in the Gulf of Carpentaria. Um, So the project involved archaeologists, anthropologists, linguists uh, working together in various ways on questions of isolation uh, and the impacts of of geographic and social isolation on, on Aboriginal people in the Gulf of Carpentaria. Uh, and so I, I got a PhD scholarship on the ARC project uh, and was fortunate enough to, to spend about 18 months doing fieldwork up in the Gulf. Very remote, very spectacular, beautiful part of Australia mm. um, with a, a small community of about 1,000 Aboriginal and um, non-Aboriginal people. 
living in that community. So jumping right into the tougher questions, um, you've written about Aboriginal identity, belonging, and the ways in which Indigenous and non-Indigenous Australian identities inform one another. How do these relationships play out in your work? Sure. Um, I guess if I can contrast my uh, doctoral research a bit from my current project, um, working in uh, the Gulf, I the, the community there um, had, uh, there was a small non-Aboriginal population who were living in the community ostensibly to provide services. So people working as police, working in health services and in education. And the I guess the relations, as I kind of characterise them in that instance, were were what I sort of described as a, a present absence. So there were there were people who were living in the community, but who had very little interaction with the Aboriginal people that they were living alongside. There was a, a very defined kind of spatial autonomy of the white fellows who were living in that community, and they, in the interviews that I did with them, found that they had relatively little understanding of the broader kind of Aboriginal population that they were working within um, and that they were very isolated themselves within what is already a very geographically isolated place. I guess that that hinted to me that, you know, that in understanding these questions about Aboriginal policy and service delivery in remote communities, we can't just understand Aboriginal people's needs. We also need to understand... The, the experiences of the people who are in those communities delivering services. I had a I had a really unique opportunity in my postdoc, which is the opportunity to craft my own project basically from scratch, which is it's a great luxury. And so in doing that, I decided that I wanted to find a, a strong contrast to my doctoral research. So to find a place that um, might have very different experiences or very different relations between Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal people. And the town that I landed in, (laughs) Wyndham, which is a port town uh, in the East Kimberley, uh, has a very similar size population to Mornington Island, where I did my doctoral research, but has very different, very different relationships between Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal people. Yeah, so further to that, uh, you've written about um, intercultural relations, which is, I guess, a, a kind of key term in Australian anthropology. From reading your work, the the division between non-Aboriginal and Aboriginal people in a place like Mornington is quite different to how that difference is experienced and interpolated in a place like Wyndham. Is that a question? Uh, <laughs> I should put it as a question. Like, That's is that, kind of the answer, right? Is, yeah. Hmm. I think I think if I can add to that, mm. it would be at the end. There's also a degree to which isolation or a lack of isolation plays um, a, an impact on this. So, um, in a place like Wyndham, you have you have a highly mobile uh, non indigenous population i know we have a preconceived notion or a stereotype that aboriginal people are highly mobile but a lot of the non-aboriginal people living in that community are also highly mobile so itinerant workers um people like truck drivers um people seasonal workers so particularly i've done some work with um doing some oral history work with meat workers Mm -hmm. it's a highly seasonal form of labor so um, people would be spending 
six months of the year in the southern part of Western Australia and another six months of the year in, in northern Australia. So I think in terms of the relationships between Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal people, if you can contrast that situation to somewhere like Mornington Island, there's, um, which is an island, um, <laughs> and it's quite difficult to get to. Uh, currently it's very expensive to get there. Um, you, you have uh, a very different dynamic in terms of the numbers of people who come and go and the frequency with which people come and go from from those places. Okay. Yeah, so your recent work, I mean, this brings us to your recent work uh, on pastoralism and, and belonging in the Kimberley, particularly in, uh, as it's experienced now in relation to like, uh, recent economic changes. So what's, what kinds of economic development have you been writing about and how do Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal people encounter them? So broadly, I've been uh, writing and um, and thinking a lot of writing and thinking, thinking <laughs> yeah. as well as writing. Is that a, that's a way of saying these are like these are like preparatory thoughts? Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, um, is is to think about the decline um, in in pastoralism. So I guess there's a particular history of. The cattle industry in northern Australia, and particularly in the Kimberley, which um, went into uh, sort of fairly steep decline during the 1970s and 1980s. And uh, Wyndham, at one point in time, had the largest abattoir in the Southern Hemisphere, which closed in 1985. So... At, at its peak, it was employing about 5,000 people seasonally, uh, so for about six months of the year. Um, so it, it was quite a big enterprise with a lot of flow-on kind of industries involved as well. So again, truck drivers, school teachers, all kinds of people who were living in the community. There was, there's been this kind of period, this, this kind of lull in pastoralism in particular for sort of during the 90s and 2000s. And then gradually we've seen um, more recently um, the sort of corporatization of the of pastoralism in Australia so large often um, uh, well-known entrepreneurs have established pastoral companies uh, which are reliant on access to large tracts of land in order to be profitable so I guess there's been this return to pastoralism in a way of, of thinking now about how do we uh, how do we streamline supply chains so um, to compete in a global market? Um, and so some of the developments around the live export of cattle um, give you an indication of the volumes of cattle that are needed to be profitable and the size of the operations have, have increased. And so we're seeing people like uh, Twiggy Forrest and Gina Reinhartz, um, who, who have made their money mostly in, in mining, have, have now developed um, offshoot uh, pastoral arms of the of their of their mining companies in order to um, expand their portfolios I guess and and they've been part of the drive for these large um, conglomerates are those experienced differently by Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal people in these places or in terms it's kind of, of like a return of the beef barons isn't it yeah 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 and I mean it's not as though this is an entirely new thing in Australian pastoralism there's I mean people will know perhaps um, Kidman, the, the, like Australian pastoralism is synonymous with um, with with these, as you say, with with beef barons, you know, with um, large enterprises. Um, but in terms of the workforces that are employed, there's been a real um, a real decline in the number of 
people employed, which is a had impacts felt by both Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal people. So there's rather than having um, station-based management, a lot of these large corporations will have a singular workforce that they move to different properties um, at different times of the year. So you're getting a more mobile population um, of workers who might not uh, that might not have infrastructure, permanent infrastructure at every property that they own, mm-hmm. which is, I guess, a bit of a contrast to the more sort of family-based management of a, of a station. There's also a lot more contractors involved. So, um, you know, a lot of the people that I've been interviewing talk about a time where workers in the pastoral industry could, could um, you know, go mustering, uh, put up a fence, you know, dig out a bore, fix a windmill... And now those tasks have been compartmentalised. So you might have a contract mustering group, a contract lot of fences. Mm. In in other moments like uh, that, you're making me think of uh, that's it's often been quite strong. That sort of industrial change has often been strongly supported by a whole rhetoric of modernisation and efficiency and you know and it's and there's a there's a corresponding sort of ideal worker that's that's encouraged along the the same lines you know from from the enclosure of the commons on you know and all 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 through the colonial period is that happening here as well how's the rhetoric around that how does that play out so there's this there has been a a sort of nostalgia for this historical period where aboriginal and non-aboriginal people um shared labor and this this is a nostalgia that's not just in in um kind of non-aboriginal narratives about that time. This is something that Aboriginal people are very proud of and are very um, are as much invested in that kind of romanticism and that nostalgia as, as non-Aboriginal people. Um, so I think that nostalgia has been part of a social licence to operate, that some of these um, large companies now play on um, as a means of creating a space for the kind of work that they do in the communities that they're, they're working in. Um, and I think people have these aspirations of a return to these to those kind of the heyday of pastoralism and and they see these these large companies as as potentially delivering that mm-hmm. in a way which is interesting because because at the same time it doesn't necessarily match with what we're seeing in terms of right. the labor forces that they're employing or or the kind of practices that they're developing right. so in terms of what you were saying before about contract work it's not actually providing you know, jobs in the region necessarily, and it might actually involve bringing in a transient community that that might require services in the community for a while, and then and then promptly leave. Mm. I mean, one of the one of the interesting ones is the live cattle export from Wyndham. I talk a lot to tourists, and as part of my research, I've been interviewing tourists who come through the community as well as residents. And a lot of people say, um, quite without prompting, that the future of this place is in live cattle export, and this is what's going to return people to remote community to these remote towns. This is what's going to, you know, reinvigorate them. But actually, live export produces very little local jobs. Um, 
the the people who work in the the yards at the at the port fly in from Darwin for, and there and there's two or three people who are there for a couple of days and the ships that come in minimize the amount of time that they're at dock so they might be there less than sort of 10 hours they might be there you know for half a day even though from the outside it appears as though this is the potential to kind of develop these places in actual fact it's it's quite the opposite mm. the companies and the exporters that are involved in these industries do as much as they can to minimize the cost of of labor mm. does that produce i mean it's so often historically that produces or exacerbates racial tensions in a place or exacerbates tensions between the stranger community and the local community is, is that playing out i think people i think the people who are working in those industries are there for such short periods of time that there's not the opportunity to, to develop those kind of relationships um and i don't think there's probably the sort of attentiveness to those relationships I guess now yeah and the material disparities between the populations wouldn't be felt in the same way because there just isn't the same amount of time people are coming in and working and then leaving and not exactly there are no luxuries for them to be had to be had in in any case exactly mm-hmm. yeah interesting Certainly when there was a larger population in Wyndham, um, people talk about there being very clear divides between, for instance, people who were called the townies, who worked in social, who worked in, who provided services or um, businesses that serviced the meat workers. Mm -hmm. And then there were the kind of port people who worked down at the meatworks or the and the wharfies who worked um, on the wharf. Um, so there was there were partly as a product of the large population, which was in the thousands during the season. Um, there was a much more stratified kind of social hierarchy, including football teams for the townies and the wharfies, and so and basketball teams, softball teams. People have memories of of sort of during the 1960s and 1970s of these of these kind of social divisions which you just don't get now to the same degree so you've used this phrase aboriginal capitalism to describe some of these changes and i'm interested in why uh, why you choose that phrase um and then you've talked about it as the third wave of aboriginal capitalism so what are the other two waves and how does that emerge out of him Sure. So I guess this term was a bit um, intended to be a little provocative. And I guess if I can start at the end point, which is that the context that I'm drawing from is a very specific instance where um, an Aboriginal company has been developed out of profits made through the mining industry. So in terms of that being what I'm thinking of as the third wave, what are the first two waves? I guess another way of thinking of this is like uh, instances where Aboriginal people have entered the market to to create products or services that uh, distinguish them from other things that are available. So the first wave, as I conceive of it, is sort of happened during the 1950s, 1960s, when Aboriginal people were selling, they were commodifying their own culture to sell to the market. So they were saying, there was a real interest, a growing interest in Australia at that time in Aboriginal culture and Aboriginal people and a desire for people to be able to own part of that iconography or to have part of that iconography in their own homes. And you can see this in the material culture from the 1950s. You know, everyone's seen the kind of ashtrays with Aboriginal people on them. And, and, and Aboriginal people entered the market selling things like art, 
um, and handcrafts as a way of being part of part of that marketing and kind of capturing that interest. So I think of that as as the kind of first wave of, of Aboriginal people entering the market. And the second wave, I think, sort of came in the 80s and 90s and, and onwards, where people thought about, okay, if we, if we don't want to sell these images, these icons or these kind of um, items that represent us, what else can we do to be in the market? And so this is kind of like what I'm thinking of as the preferred supplier model. So this is where people, where Aboriginal people are part of a market where they provide the same kind of services that are already available, but they capture their audience by providing a sort of feel-good opportunity to to purchase services that they know will deliver profits to an Aboriginal community or Aboriginal people in some way. So they rely on people's idea of having preferred suppliers. So for instance at the University of Melbourne we have like quite an extensive list of preferred suppliers who are uh, Aboriginal owned or companies that employ large numbers of Aboriginal people. And the idea is particularly for large corporations or multinationals that this is then part of their own social license to operate in the community so they're able to say you know we buy services that have these other impacts and so I guess the third wave is sort of building is building on the knowledge that Aboriginal people have of these first two waves and to use their knowledge of Aboriginal people and the kind of pressure points of of Aboriginal society in a way to make money um, by entering the marketplace in quite, I hazard to say, but predatory and kind of exploitative ways. I have a question about that, but you said earlier in the email that you're not an economist, so you might not actually, you can just leave this if you... So when you say Aboriginal capitalism, are you talking then about and you've described the sort of three layers that you see. Are you talking, I'm wondering about what in, what in particular might make a capitalism, a capitalism um, Aboriginal. So are you saying just Aboriginal participation in capitalism, or might you also be able to identify multiple ways? And I think you might be able to, within those three tiers, ways in which the, the use of or the, the dispersal of capital within a community say once it moves out of the larger framework of capitalism and into a community or into the hands of, of an Aboriginal um, individual who identifies as such, is there something distinctive about the way in which um, currency or commodity changes hands within those communities, things that are done differently with the wealth? Yeah, certainly that's um, that's something that's been written about quite a lot in Australia. So um, people like Diane Austin-Bruce um, have talked about um, the kind of mobility of cash and commodities within Aboriginal societies and the way in which um, the circulations of, of um, cash and commodities among kin it, it takes a very particular form mm-hmm. in, in Aboriginal kind of society as, as distinct from um, perhaps what we might see in the broader society. As capitalism, yeah. So for me, coming from Canada, I don't know the Australian context as well, but that, that definitely rings true um, with the Canadian context that like the, the use and application of capitalism is quite different. You know, the capitalism thing is like very exploratory for mm-hmm, me. Mm-hmm. So I'm not an economic anthropologist, mm-hmm. um, but I really love some of that work and I 
maybe if I can say one thing about it, it's that I think a lot of the literature that we have at the moment that talks about um, Aboriginal people's involvement um, in business or in in the market talks about um, talks about issues of capacity and governance. So what it does is instead of talking about the market and what the market does to Aboriginal people, it talks about how Aboriginal people aren't meeting the market. It talks about so it pushes the conversation not. It pushes the conversation back onto Aboriginal people Mm -hmm. and what it is about them that's a failure or is not working rather than saying these are like exploitative practices or these Mm -hmm. are predatory practices that that we should we should talk about. You know, my interest in this area is trying to draw the themes out in a way which doesn't always delve only into this these issues of like capacity and governance and problematizing aboriginal people as kind of economic agents in their own right yeah you can see a real parallel or at least i can see a real parallel there between what you have to say about aboriginal capitalism and what you have to say about interculturality Generally, when we say intercultural, we've meant how are Aboriginal people affected? We haven't meant how are white people affected or what happens in between those those places. So further to that, let's talk about species. Your current project, and I know from your previous work, you know you have an interest in multi-species and, and, and multi-species belonging. So you can tell us a bit more about that. Like how is a croc, crocodile, crocodilus porosus, my old friend... Or, or, or a cow implicated in how people make place in a place like the Kimberley. I guess this is an extension of some of that earlier, of some of the, those earlier conversations that we've been having, which is, so the, the three animals that I've, I guess I've been um, interested in, um, saltwater crocodiles, a small rare bird species, um, the Gouldian finch, and to a lesser extent cows. Both Crocodiles and Gordian finches were heavily predated um, in the in the Kimberley uh, in the um, nineteen sort of I guess post war onwards, and as a form of economy. Um, so people sold crocodile skins to make handbags, and finches were collected. Um, people they're very beautiful, small, um, brightly coloured birds that um, people like to keep in aviaries. Um, and so there's a really um, strong history of both Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal people working together in these industries. But in the more recent period, this kind of working with these animals has changed to a strong conservation ethic. So while people used to make money out of kind of trapping and collecting and killing these animals, now they're making money out of conserving them. So a lot of what I've been interested in is understanding the changing conceptualizations of these animals or is it is it people's conceptions of the animals are changing or is it that the people are changing? So are we actually having different people coming to live in these places um, who have different notions about conservation and the environment and so they place a higher value on, on maintaining these animals as part of the environment? And, I mean, it's been interesting. There was a, a man who is very well known um, in the Kimberley as a was very well known as a Gouldian Finch trapper, and I interviewed him um, last year. 
And he said to me, oh, I'd never do it now. And, and this is a man who had, you know, 30 years of experience of trapping, of trapping finches. Um, and, and I said, oh, and why is that? Like, why would you not do that now? He said, oh, they're beautiful. <laughs> and so there's, there is this kind of change in the way that people are thinking about the animals that they share space with, I guess, in these places. And this kind of emerging respect for, for them in a way. And I... I mean, I do wonder if that's a sense of, you know, along with the declining human population, there's a sense in which people have a have greater feelings of empathy towards declining populations in animals, you know. Mm. We need to all stick together, humans and animals. Right. Because it made me think of, uh, I mean, a, a famous case of this in the Kimberley is Malcolm Douglas. Malcolm Douglas, a a TV star who made uh, his early living hunting crocs and then became a kind of superstar of environs, Kimberly, who uh, and loves and, you know, wanted just to conserve crocs. Yeah. And I think we see we see that as as kind of in contradictory terms. But the people who have those experiences don't see them that way, which I think is, you know, it's part of the challenge to kind of unravel and, and and explain the croc, the croc one is interesting too because I think it's um, there's been um, last year or in 2015 there was a woman who had her arm who, who lived in Wyndham uh, and there's a there is a, a small kind of estuarine saltwater estuary um, that runs through the middle of town uh, and she the woman had her arm bitten off by a croc while she was sitting at this estuary. And so I think there is this very real sense of sharing space with these animals in a way that is hard to conceptualise in other parts of Australia. So when you're talking about the shifting perceptions of the animals and the shifting relationship, are you just talking about the migrant workers and the service workers? Are you also then talking about Indigenous populations? And then as kind of a follow-up to that question, uh, is there a way... Is there increased interest in the relationship that Indigenous populations and cultures have had historically to these um, endangered animals or um, dwindling animal populations? Um, Or is it just sort of seen from a purely conservationist perspective? So I think where I'm going with this is that in what people conceive of as their own precarious times Mm -hmm. they can then project that into other animals and Mm -hmm. see that that in their own moments that animals can have these kind of precarious moments as well but i mean they clearly have a different relationship to the cows and the crocodiles yeah Mm. not as much as we might imagine so people eat crocodiles in the kimberley Mm. so i think there's an idea of uh, i've sort of been talking a a bit about the way in which people figure animals as what i'm kind of calling sympathetic co-residents so there's um a sense in which um occupying space together um creates this sense of of um empathy for the plights of these of these animals which is not to say that people don't eat them don't kill them and eat them but but i think as a general kind of concept of of a population um people have a sense of of decline or of of um 
certainly travelling through the Kimberley with Nyaranyam people, you'll often hear people um, see cattle and and say, oh, Paul Bala, you know, he's he's thirsty, that one, you know, he's he's looking for water. Or, um, you know, uh, one in one situation I drove past... Um, a cow on the side of the road that had been injured, probably hit by a car. And everyone in the, all my Nyaranyan kind of people in the car with me said, slow down, slow down, slow down. So I slowed right down and, and everyone commented on the condition of the, uh, and they said, oh, you know, poor Bala, like too far gone now. Like, you know, only one way for him now. Um, and so I think people feel very connected to these animals and to their plights and to to um, and see themselves in a, in a similar way you know so totally changing gears now um, you used to run the center for native title anthropology at ANU coming out of that you've said and this is in your phrasing the era of native title is over so why might you say that um, and what do you think comes afterwards so I guess the context of that of that comment is very much from an anthropological or a you know or an anthropologist. Um, so anthropologists have been heavily involved um, from very early on in um, the native title processes. So um, as conducting research to contribute towards. Um, the claims that Aboriginal people um, compile in order to demonstrate their uh, rights and interests in in country. And as we're seeing the the sort of bulk of native title claims be resolved uh, in Australia, the um, there's there's this kind of open question for anthropologists about what their role is going to be in in the kind of what what people refer to as the post-determination world, I guess. Mm-hmm. Post-determination being post-native title claim determination, basically. So probably the the that quote should be reframed as the era of native title is over brackets for anthropologists <laughs> but I but that it doesn't have to be the end of the story and certainly many of the um very committed passionate at young anthropologists that I was lucky to work with and um during that time when I was at ANU uh, who work for native title represented bodies around Australia there's a there's a question you know about w- what their role is going to be moving forward um, and what the role of anthropologists is, is going to be. And I think there's a huge amount of expertise in that body of, of about 100 anthropologists across Australia, so it's quite a large number of people, and and of finding ways to, to position themselves and their skills in ways that are uh, useful. Well, we were talking about this. I mean, you and I have talked about this uh, a little bit. The, the post-determination world is a world of administration because it doesn't seem all that likely that the um, regime of land rights in Australia is going to change anytime soon, right? That the energy, the political energy for change is kind of gone. But now people have, yeah, all these rights and these corporations to administer those rights. So I guess... At, the open question is who, who is, who are the, what are the anthropologists going to do with that? In terms of the bodies that are established to hold native title, there are issues. Again, I think as I referred to before, there's issues that have been identified um, around 
capacity and governance the the kind of structures that native title sets up or requires aboriginal people to to have a a are quite onerous um, and there will, I think, going forward need to be scaffolding to support a lot of that. And whether or not anthropologists are able to position themselves to be part of that, I think, is, 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 is a question which we haven't quite realised yet. Certainly, I think our lawyers have been quite good at <laughs> positioning themselves in that space and I think uh, I think... Anthropologists um, will have a role, but potential for anthropologists to be involved in that will largely be dependent on their capacity to brand themselves in new kind of ways. Mm. Do you think um, anthropologists find this difficult to write about and talk about? I think the people who were really heavily involved in claims in Australia early on are at retirement age. So there's there ha, there have been kind of like two waves of people involved in the native title industry. Uh, there were there's a there's a, a large proportion of people who were working in anthropology um, and interested in these issues and in kind of land rights in general at the time that it came about. And a lot of those people have been very integral to um, the kind of development of native title anthropology in Australia. And there's been sort of a second wave which has come through, which has been what they call the employment of in-house anthropologists, so in-house being in Aboriginal organisations. And I think the kind of skill set of that latter wave is is actually more diverse um, in terms of the kind of work that they do within those organisations as compared with um, consultants who, you know, have a much more um, limited remit in terms of their participation in claims. Mm-hmm. It's so different from uh, the relationship between anthropologists and Indigenous groups and in, in lots of other, other settler colonial nations, right? Again, in the United States archaeologists and some linguists have really close relationships with the tribes uh, but there's also a really a, a really suspicious relationship with cultural anthropologists mm-hmm. yeah certainly I think it's kind of unique in Australia I don't know as much about the context of New Zealand but I know it's unique in Australia compared to say Canada where you know communities might have an intimate relationship with a researcher who might be employed as you were saying on a contract basis or um, in some way engaged with lawyers um, through the ban to sort of engage in land title disputes which is absolutely where we'll be in that era forever in Canada or until, you know, the courts rule correctly. Well, um, this seems like a good place to uh, end our conversation. Thank you, Lara, for joining us. Thank you, Cameo, for joining us uh, here in another conversation in anthropology at Deakin. We've been speaking today with uh, Dr. Cameo Daly from the University of Melbourne. If you'd like to know more about Cameo's work, you can find her online at the University of Melbourne's webpage or on Twitter at Cameo Daly. If you'd like to learn more about us, you can find us on Twitter. Uh, I'm at TD Neal and David is at DH Border Giles. Or uh, you can also find us at blogs.deacon.edu.au slash anthropology. <laughs> <laughs>